Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, it's Hillary here. Just a quick note, this series does deal with a lot of tough subject matter that may be difficult for some listeners. So please keep this in mind when and where you choose to listen to these episodes. Pat Chisholm, dressed in a crisp white button-down, tucked into a pair of jeans, stands outside of his house. He looks into the camera, takes a deep breath, and begins reciting what happened the day Christian was shot. So I unlocked it myself. That took some time, I guess. And when I came in, he was coming up. Last episode, we heard the various 911 calls from Pat and Katie documenting the tragic events of October 12th, 2013. On this episode, we will continue to explore what happened immediately following Christian's death, including the various testimonies Pat Chisenhall gave law enforcement. I'm Hillary Burton Morgan, and this is True Crime Story, It Couldn't Happen Here. All right, you guys, it's Hillary Burton Morgan here, and you know our team by now. We have Dan, Poe, and Andrew. And so we've talked a lot about the Chisholm Hall's version of events and Pat's justification for shooting Christian, that Christian was threatening both Pat Chisholm Hall and his daughter, Katie. Christian allegedly broke through the window on their front porch, and Pat had to shoot Christian in order to defend himself and his daughter. So on October 15th, 2013, just three days after this all happens, Pat voluntarily comes into the local police station. I just have a seat right here. Right here's fine, Mr. Pat. Okay. Pat, this is Detective uh, Spencer M. Moore. This is Pat Chisholm Hall. It's good to meet you, sir. Um, he wants to talk with you a few minutes about uh, things that he had spoke with, I think, with Katie this morning. <clears throat> I had to work from I, I wanted to come. I, I, uh, I went to some, 
counseling this morning with the chaplain for the Cary Police Department, somebody hooked me up with. Uh, and it's, I, 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 he's helped. Well, let me ask you this, Pat. What, what, what is your interest today? What is it that you came to us about today? Well, I was, um, um, sa Saturday, I was like, it's in a state of shock. You know, mm -hmm. just, it seems surreal. I, I, sometimes Saturday night or Sunday, something happened and I just, I've had panic attack after panic attack, which I've never had before. Mm -hmm. And nightmares and everything's a fragmented fog and it's like a mental block and there are things I don't, I don't even remember about Saturday. And uh, I came yesterday because I said I need to come Monday at nine. Somebody told me Monday at nine and I'll just had had a major panic attack early that morning and my son was going to bring me and I saw my grandson and just seeing him I just fell apart and all the way over here I was in trouble and I got here and I thought I was having a stroke but it was a panic attack and mm -hmm. uh, I've never known that before and I just my mind is like a, that fear and that chaos and that and, that, and everything it's like it just Something broke in me, and I. What, what What do you fear at this point? I don't fear. I don't know. It's just my mind. I just. I'm. I'm I can't remember. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't fear. It's just the fear of that moment. Saturday, it just something flashed in my in me, and and so I just wanted to come and 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 because uh, I because I had to leave. They took me to the hospital yesterday. Right. And, um, are, are you doing okay today? You still look like you're a little sick or, or under uh, the weather, basically. My, my mind is just not right. Some, that Saturday, just the intensity of the fear of that moment and and everything, just it, it, Saturday. I, I don't. Saturday night, Sunday is when it hit me, and okay. the, my my son-in-law, my my grandchild. It's all just hit me. So he's saying he didn't make the statement he was supposed to make, and now he's back because he knew he was supposed to come in, but he was having a panic attack. In a death, how many times have you guys experienced law enforcement putting off their interviews because someone's having panic attacks or just not feeling up to it? I think that happens. I think he did make his statements on the day of, and I think what... I heard Pat saying is that he tried to come in Sunday to talk and they were like, you need to come back tomorrow at nine when there's people here to take your statement. He gave statements on Saturday, but then he had his panic attacks and he wanted to talk again on Sunday. Yeah, this is his, they did get the statement on the day of. And, and but this, now he's kind of, he's saying that it's all no, a blur and he's... No, this is weird. This is weird. He's made a statement officially to the police on the day of. They have a written statement somewhere and he's coming in two days later to talk about his feeling and his fuzziness. No, but he's, his... he's also saying that they asked him to come back in, but he couldn't. No, he came we... voluntarily, so he's not been named a suspect. He's not been told. Well, I mean, they know he killed him, so. Okay, okay, wait, let's, so when they say, just to be clear, when they say you volunteer to come to the station, they ask you, okay, I volunteer to come to the station. He makes an unsolicited, unsolicited. visit to the sheriff's department to speak to them. That is really unusual, and the content is really strange. Yeah, because the content, he's just 
going on about his brain and his panic attacks. And he's not saying, you know, I know I was unclear. I want to try to make sure my statements are clear. I'm trying to remember. He's not talking about any of that. He's just stating his state. What else does he go on to I wanna, say? I want to play this other clip because I think it does add clarity. To be clear, there is no expectation for Pat Chisholm to come into law enforcement Sunday or any other day because they already got a statement from him the day of Christian's death on Saturday. I mean, they generally do in a case like this, especially for the person who pulled the trigger, interview them more than once. So there would be an expectation that he would do another interview, but he isn't waiting for them to ask him. He's doing it on his own volition. He's just coming in. So you're currently not on anything you for okay. Did um well I mean are you here? Did did you come other than a touch basis? Were you expecting to try to take that polygraph today? If you want to Well, I don't I don't know if we can actually schedule you today. I was just asking and the reason I say this is because um I just lost my train of thought. Reason um Polygraph session takes uh, usually about three to four hours, yeah. and Lieutenant Taylor, who does the polygraphs, has one at one o'clock. So if you are interested, and if what brought you here today is to reschedule that, then we can reschedule it for you and notify you of the rescheduling. Right, because we were un under the impression your doctor wanted you to relax for a couple of days, so we were we were going to give you that time to do that. So these are the kinds of things that I wish we could include in the show but we don't have time for because it just goes to show that, I mean, everybody involved in the situation is confused. You hear law enforcement ask, like, why are you here? They're sitting there in silence for an uncomfortable amount of time. And Mr. Chisholm isn't saying anything. And so finally law enforcement's like, I mean, I guess polygraph test, you know, like drawn. Yeah, it sounds to me like on the day of the shooting, when they spoke with Patches and Hall, there must have been some discussion of, you know, oh, I'll take a polygraph if you want me to. Or somehow they discussed the possibility of doing that because now they're, yeah, they're saying, why are you here? Did you come in to take that polygraph or why are you here? And he doesn't seem like he really has an answer of why he's here. He's like, yeah, I'll take the polygraph if you want me to. But he doesn't seem to have a clear reason of why he came in that day to speak to them. Why do you think he came in that day to speak with them? I think, I mean, I would take him at his word. I mean, if he's saying I'm like just upset and having panic attacks and freaking out, maybe he just thinks like talking about it again. I don't I have no idea, really. I mean, but he's not talking about it. That's what's weird is yeah. that he's not doing that. You know, I mean, I'd say from the perspective of a defense attorney, I would look at it and say he's trying to establish that his brain isn't working right and he's not necessarily a reliable narrator. That's what I would do if I were a defense attorney. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's just freaking out and he's just, I mean, if I were involved in that, I would be a hot mess. I'd be having panic attacks and nightmares. I would be wandering around. I don't know what I'd be doing, but it's not unfathomable that I would be doing what he's doing. It's weird because he doesn't seem to have a purpose other than telling them his state of mind, but it's not unreasonable. Right. But from a more cynical, or if you're looking at it from a different angle, like as a defense attorney, then I could look at it and say, he's trying to establish that maybe what he said isn't totally clear because he's reiterating over and over again that he can't remember things. Things are fragments. He doesn't know. So, I mean, he could even be doing that from a non-cynical Yeah, that could be statement. an earnest. Right. So there are two points of view that 
you could take it. He's absolutely being totally earnest and he's entirely messed up and traumatized and he just needs to talk to somebody Mm -hmm. and has come in and they're saying, well, why are you talking to us? Why are you here? And that's all genuine and true. Or it's cynically, as you stated, it's a backtrack, you know, where he's basically telling the officers that he's all fuzzy. He's not really sure about the details, all the while knowing that he has actually given a statement of details on the day of the shooting. It could be something like that. You know, if somebody wanted to hold him on those details, he's now possibly provided a cover saying, oh, I don't know if I was correct in those details. I really don't remember. He walks in, he says, I I just, I, I don't remember. Things are hazy. I'm stressed. And they're not quite sure why he's there. Like, what else do you want to say? So eventually, as they're talking in this room, they're in the police interview room. And the investigators suggest like, well, would you, obviously, they're feeling that he wants to say something to them, right? And it's not clear what he wants to say. So the investigators actually suggest, would you be okay actually going back to the scene and walking us through what happened? And I think that's their way of saying, you're here and you're not sure why you're here. How about we do a walkthrough so we could actually get it all down, exactly your step-by-step of what your story is that day. Good afternoon. I'm David Adams with the Harney County Sheriff's Office. We're out at the home of Pat Chisholm October the 12th, 2013, we had an incident here that occurred about 11 o'clock a.m. Mr. Pat Chisholm has agreed to come out and do a reenactment of Saturday's events. Present at the time of filming is Detective... So the video starts with the officer introducing it. They're standing in front of Katie's house, which is part of the Chisholm compound. There are two separate living structures. And they're standing in front of the house. And then Pat is walking from the driveway around the house, pointing to the porch and taking us in front and around the house, explaining what he says unfolded. What does Pat look like? I mean, Pat is a middle-aged guy. He's wearing a white shirt, jeans with a belt. He's got gray hair that's maybe a little thinning, and his eyes are swollen. He's putting his face down. He's not opening them big or, you know, he's looking the part of what he described to them, how he's feeling. No, I don't agree. No, I meant his face when he starts the video. Here's what I see. I see, as an actor, someone telling me they're distraught, someone telling me that their brain is not functioning properly, someone telling me they are at the lowest point in their life. And what I see is a man who has combed his hair and slicked his hair back and put on an ironed dress shirt and tucked it into his nice laundered pants with a little belt and has put together an outfit and himself in a way that says, I'm an upstanding member of this community and look how put together I am. He does not look disheveled. He does not look the part physically. There's not one hair out of place. That's right. What I meant was he begins the video, his face is down. He doesn't look up to the camera for a really long time. Once he starts getting revved up, he starts being much more perky. But at the beginning, he's got that voice of like, oh, he can barely get it out. And he's got his face down and he's not looking. And so that's what I meant about he looks the part. It's like he's doing that. But meanwhile, his physical appearance is very well put together. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So just a quick sort of setup for this walkthrough video. There are two houses next door to each other. The house on the left is Pat Chisholm Hall and his wife's house. The house on the right is where Katie lives. So Pat sets up this video saying that Christian has pulled into the driveway of Katie's house. And that's where Pat and Christian are talking outside of Katie's house. Meanwhile, Katie has gone over to Pat Chisholm's house next door and is on the porch and eventually goes inside Pat Chisholm's house. So while Pat's having the argument with Christian in front of Katie's house, Katie is inside her father's house, right? That's the sort of dynamic we have here. So then as Pat tells the story, he's saying that the argument moves from in front of Katie's house to in front of his own house. There's a lot I don't remember in I, I trying to, he ran and got on the porch and was banging on the doors, banging on the windows, yelling, cursing, demanding Katie come out. 
he was all over the place. He was, he was running everywhere, yelling. It was truly, truly scary. And largely he's saying that once Katie goes inside her parents' house, that Christian is at the window of that house banging to be let in, and Katie's inside right. not letting him in. But we don't and, know if that's the front window. In fact, he kind of intimates that she's on a side window, not in the living room where everything supposedly transpired. But he says Christian's running back and forth, and he sees him over at the tree on the phone, and then he says right. he sees him on the opposite side. He would yell at me and get right in my face, and, and I've never seen a rage like that in my life. Okay, at some point, Y'all got up to the house and y'all were separated? Yeah. I, I was walking around. You overheated. Somewhere in here. I, was, I moved over here. Somewhere in here with the phone. I think it's the elder that came up here, I think, and all over the place. It seemed like I saw him standing under that, under that tree down there talking on a cell phone, but I'm not sure what that was about. I can't, I can't, I'm not sure on that. And I, I remember the 911 person saying, I don't remember all I said, the questions, and I, she said something about hostile or something. Do you feel threatened? And I said, yes. So there's a long stretch back and forth from one side of his house to the other side of his house and beyond that he's saying is happening with Christian's movements. So where was, where was Christian at this whole time? This time, I'm not sure, all over the place, running around. I came back after she said safe place. Somewhere right in here. And I looked, and his car was on the other side of that truck. Oh, no, not his car, Katie's car. Uh-huh. And he was in it. He opened the doors and was rummaging through it. Okay. And I thought, that's my chance to get in the house. Because I, I couldn't get in the house. I thought, that, that's my chance. All right, so at that point, you went? At that point, I walked, best I remember, fast without looking obvious. I walked. He's basically saying, Katie goes in the house and Christian's banging on the door, banging on the window, demanding to be let in, right? right? Then he says Christian goes into Katie's car, which is parked in front of her parents' driveway, right? Right. To the opposite side of her house. So he's now gone to the left side if you're facing the house from where they were over on the right side. Right. And that seems to be where he's saying is his opportunity while Christian's in the car to get into the house. Right. So then he goes in, he opens the door with a lock, and he notes that Katie is not in that living room that he's entering through the front door, but she's over at this other window. Right. So she could have run over and, right. you know, helped him close the door. But it's interesting, though, on the 911 call, it's a little different. You know, Pat's outside and saying that Christian's on the porch at the window demanding to be let in. And then that's when he says, this is my chance to go into the house. So not in the car, out in the front porch. Now, this I didn't remember. My daughter told me this this morning. I thought she let me in. She said I got in with the key. I asked her, I said, did you let me in? She said, no. She said she was looking out that round window. Which round window? Down that 
from inside this home? Yeah, right here. Okay. Bring her right there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, did you let me in? She said, no. She said, I heard the key. And I came running. So I unlocked it myself. That took some time, I guess. And when I came in, he was coming up. And she was, she was somewhere right here. I darted in. And I don't remember her pushing, but she said she helped me push the door. Okay, let us move inside the home now. And show us how the door was closed. I slipped in. I don't know. I guess I came in and tried to push it. I guess got it somewhere along in there, and I guess Katie was right here. And so we started pushing, and he was pushing the opposite way. So we were pushing fiercely like this, and I, I don't remember how long, but I, we managed, I guess with her help, to get it closed, and I locked it like that. Yeah, he's very clear to say about the details. He doesn't remember. He's like, I'm fuzzy on the details. I don't really remember exactly. I think I was here, but about the logistics of where he was, he seems to be clear on. I came in here, I was pushing the door. Katie helped me to push the door close. I was standing on this side. Katie was behind me. He's articulate about those positions, but the actual, like, the I don't know when he came through what I did next. I don't remember. I'm fuzzy. So it is this interesting combination of being very clear about specific things and then not remembering a lot of the details. I think that does happen in traumatic moments. I'm not saying that... I agree. I mean, I have a hard time sort of really judging his performance. You know, like you're saying, he's walking us through this, but I don't know how I would react. I mean, I would be... If I shot somebody legitimately out of self-defense, I'd be a wreck. And if I was trying to hold myself together... He doesn't feel like a wreck when he's talking. He feels very clean. Then he'll say, oh, it was so terrible. And he'll do something kind of dramatic, like put his heads in his hand. But then the way he's kind of explaining certain things doesn't feel like a wreck. It won't long like this because I was still here. I remember that because here's where my mind really gets fried. And because this was horrifying. I mean, you say you imagine, but I, I couldn't imagine there was a rage, a monstrous rage in him that I had never seen. And I was here, and all of a sudden the window just, just, and my daughter, I think somewhere here, I remember in the corner of my eye, she just went berserk with terror. I've, I've never seen terror like that. And now I don't, and I, she was running, I, I don't know what happened much after that, and I'm not, I, I got somewhere here, and I looked, and he was coming. Well, he won't come in at that point. His head was sticking in. And I don't remember the specifics, but he said, I'll kill you. And I remember my daughter was screaming. And I, I stood here, and I don't know how long it, you know, exactly what I did. But I, and then I knew he was right there. So what Pat is telling us is that the second he walked through that door, his daughter was at his side, and together... They pushed the door closed on Christian. Who was beating and trying to get in. Which would have left some physical evidence, so we will look for that. But also, as soon as the door is closed, that is when the window is broken, and there's this very, like, performative... Like, he uses his whole body and his arms to show law enforcement the trajectory of the glass as it came in. 
And the words that he's using about like this abject terror that he's describing that Katie, which I would feel too if there was a, you know, a man who's threatening violence and smashing in the window. But yeah, he throws his arms up. She makes this noise and he embodies this busting glass and Katie's fear. And then we also have a weird time logistic conundrum happening. I think that's interesting that when you see the video, it feels like a performance. When you read the transcript, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like a performance. That's a great point. If we were just reading this, this would be really terrifying. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so from the point where he says, all right, the glass blew throughout the house. Then Pat Chisholm Hall walks us through going to get the gun, 
and where he took aim, how he took aim. When the window was forward yeah. and the blinds were forward, pinned against the caps there, what side of the window was he coming in? Can you recall? Do you remember any parts of the body, head, leg, anything? The first thing that faced, the face of rage. And then I ran, I, I do remember that, I ran right here. There was a 22 rifle right there. What? That's it. That was a 22 there. Where was Katie at this at this I, moment? I, 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 I grabbed that and I came running in here. And this, I, I don't know now. I don't know. My mind has just, I saw, my mind is just, it's all fragmented and uh, it's just, uh, I, I think, I think I fired from here. Okay. But I, I cannot say for sure. Did you pull the stock up to your shoulder and take aim or did you hold it kind of like at the waistline? And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think I, I think I from the shoulder, I don't know. And I, and I think it was from there. And after that, it's a blank. It's a, it's a horrifying... Can you recall blank. after the last shot what you did with the firearm? No, I, I don't know what in the world I did with it. No idea. Can you recall how many shots you fired? No, I don't know. But he says always, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I think I was here, I think I was here, I think I was here. What I'm seeing here is not police 100%. I mean, they're very friendly, but they are questioning once when not getting answers, circling back and questioning twice. And the police are asking the same questions we were. So here's what stood out to me is that law enforcement asks two specific questions. And Pat Chisholm does not even acknowledge that they're asking a question. He just rolls on with his monologue. They ask him about which side of the window Christian's body was coming through, and he just rolls through it. And then they ask him when they're standing at the door, which side? And he just rolls right through to the things that he feels need to be shared. And then when they go back into the bedroom and they ask him as he's showing them where the guns were. In the closet. In, in the, the closet. They're like, well, where's Katie? The only two bits I remember after all of that, and it's like in a cloud, was coming back in here and opening this door and Katie being in there crying. After you had come in, after, after you went in there and with the gun? I'm, yeah, this was, all, I, this was afterwards. She was in here on the floor. Crying. Okay. The door closed. Did Katie I remember, say anything to you? No, she was sobbing. I don't, I don't remember. I just remember her crying. And he says he has no idea, no idea, no idea. Yeah, they doubled back on those questions yeah. because he, you know, didn't answer them. And also because those are key questions because they have evidence. They have evidence from crime scene photos and they have evidence from the telephone calls. Yeah, so we listened to the 911 calls last episode and really dove into each one. But I think it bears repeating that all of this happened in a short amount of time. It was like two minutes. Less than two minutes. He takes his key, unlocks the door, goes into the house, closes the door behind him. Christian's pushing against the door. He and Katie are pushing the door. They finally get the door closed, get the door locked. Then Christian breaks the window 
has his head inside the window. Pat then goes to the closet, retrieves his gun, shoots six times, and then calls 911 again. And so while he doubles down that he's fuzzy on the details, I feel like we get a pretty clear account of what he experienced that day, what Pat says happened, and then we have the 911 calls in this walkthrough video. And while law enforcement did ask some pretty good questions during the walkthrough, they really didn't seem to do anything further with that information. They don't pump the brakes. They don't say like, huh, maybe we should look at things just like a little bit closer. You know, everybody just seems to accept Pat's narrative that this was an act of self-defense. They do not interview Tony Griggs until October 17th. That's two full days after Pat's interview and recreation walkthrough. The Tony's asked to come down to the sheriff's office and he meets with Lieutenant Webb and Detective Armstrong. And that is when Tony discovers that Pat has retained a lawyer, he's refused a polygraph, and that he is using the Castle Doctrine as his defense. Which, just as a reminder to all of you, that's a law in North Carolina that states if someone comes into your home and they threaten you, you have the right to protect yourself and your home. And so Tony is not being asked for a statement in that moment. He's just being told, this is what's happening. I can't, there's no no way to describe the feeling. Uh, you see it on the news, common people being shot, being killed, and you never think it would happen to you. And then when it happens to you, you're just blown away. Just, I didn't know how to respond. My emotions and who I was for months on end is just damaged. Uh, to, to walk in and find my son laying on, supposedly, his father-in-law's front porch, and this guy shot him and killed him. I, I just can't put it together. He is on the phone with Christian while the altercations are going on, and he's the first person on scene after Christian's been shot. So Tony is a witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a key witness. Where is his statement? On the day of, or the day after? Or the day after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to never gather a statement, just to pull him in and tell him what the resolution of the case is, is incredibly frustrating. Tony Griggs was on site before the shooting. He left. He was called to come back. And by the time he got there, his son was dead. And so he was very much a part of that crime scene and the events that morning. And so when the local news begins to cover this case... Tony just happens to see the story when he's watching TV with his family. And the photos from the crime scene don't match the scene Tony witnessed when he arrived the day Christian was shot. And so we'll explore the crime scene photos as well as the autopsy report, which contains information that seems very at odds with what Pat Chisholm reported in his reenactment. That's it for this week's episode of True Crime Story. It couldn't happen here. But be sure to join us next week as we dive deeper into the Christian Griggs case. When we saw the photographs of the crime scene, the window had been bashed and pushed in. And the first thing my mom said was, that didn't look like that when we were there. I was like, no, it didn't. 
Join us next week as we continue to roll up our sleeves and dig in. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't watched Sundance TV's true crime story, It Couldn't Happen Here, you can catch all of our episodes streaming on AMC+. For more information about this and other cases we've covered, follow at I-C-H-H stories on Instagram. True Crime Story It Couldn't Happen Here was produced by Mischief Farm in association with Bungalow Media and Entertainment, Authentic Management Productions, and Figdonia in partnership with Sundance TV. Executive producers are me, Hillary Burton Morgan, Liz DeCessory, Robert Friedman, Mike Powers, and Meg Mortimer. Producers are Maggie Robinson-Katz and Libby Siegel. Our audio engineer is Brendan Dalton with original music by Philip Ridiotis. We want to say a special thank you to everyone who participated, but especially the families impacted by our cases. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.